0: Do that. Top and all of us tried to stop her, but she wouldn't listen. But you kill herself! Don't you worry. Pat's done everything. She'll come out all right. Danger has always entertained us, from high-flying circus performers to wirewalkers to human pincushions. We like watching people do things we can't imagine doing ourselves. I'm Mark Hartzman, and in this episode of Weird Historian, I speak with Bess Lovejoy. She's the author of Rest in Pieces The Curious Fates of Famous Corpses, and it's written for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Mental Floss, Atlas Obscura, and many other publications. Her most recent article is about a late 19th century entertainer who appeared to defy science and cheat death with every performance. Hi, Bess. Nice to have you on Weird Historian.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you here. So before we start talking about your latest writing, I thought we could kick things off by talking about some posthumous adventures of body parts, because that's how we first met several years ago. I sent you the embalmed head of Oliver Cromwell in the mail.
1: Not literally. (laughs) Right. And
0: and to clarify for those listening. So this was a memoir of the head, which I wrote, and you were kind enough to give me a quote about it. And, uh, and I sent it to Bess because she'd written a book called Rest in Pieces, which includes Cromwell's Head and many other stories. Um, so, you know, Bess, how did your journey of tracing these kinds of stories begin?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, the short version of the story is that I was working around 2008 on a book series called uh, Shot's Almanac or Shot's Miscellanies with a British writer named Ben Shot. And I had a colleague in the UK who would often send me um, articles that would sort of form the basis of little stories that we would put into this book. And she actually sent me one about the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who I think we maybe we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Um, but basically, the the story there was that he had turned his body into sort of a form of sculpture that was on put on display in the University College London. And... Um, she just thought that was really fascinating and she wanted us to do a little list for the book of people, artists, philosophers, et cetera, who had used their own remains in art. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating and we collected a couple of examples and it sort of got me wondering like, well, what about other cases of people doing unusual things with their bodies? And more specifically, what about famous people, um, and their their own last wishes. Like, can we collect other stories of pretty interesting or idiosyncratic last wishes? And also, what were those last wishes in the first place? Like, what did Michelangelo want for his funeral, et cetera? And as I started researching some of those stories, I realized that um, not only were there a lot of sort of funny, fascinating, weird, sad, true, all those adjectives, like specific requests, but also sometimes people had relatively ordinary requests that were not carried out Um, sometimes families or fans would fight over the body, bodies were getting stolen, Um, sometimes just heads were getting stolen, and I just realized that there was enough really fascinating material around this general idea of the adventures of famous corpses that it it would probably make for a fun little book.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, I got into this whole thing, I read a book called Cranioclepti by Colin Dickey, which got into the story of Joseph Haydn's head. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I know you covered Haydn's head. And that was such an amazing story. Joseph Haydn, of course, the famous composer, his head traveled around Austria, uh, maybe broader for like a hundred and forty-five years, I think it was. Yeah. Um, before it was returned to his body and and reburied, which is just it's just a crazy story. Um and so this was like for me, like 2012, maybe. And so after I read that, I thought like like you. I I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to collect a bunch of stories like this and put together a book. And so I started researching something like this, and I came across Oliver Cromwell's head, who, of course, the Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland in the mid-1600s. And his head ended up traveling, his embalmed head ended up traveling for 300 years around England before it got uh, reburied, not with his body. And so when I came across that, I thought, wow, it's like twice as long as as Haydn's head. And that gave me the idea Mm -hmm. for the memoir and so I scratched the other thing and wrote this memoir. And then I think your book came out shortly after that. I was like, oh, I'm glad, glad I didn't pursue that angle because you just did it. <laughs> so,
1: fine Well, that's the thing with nonfiction stories like this. I mean, it belongs to history. I mean, my my sort of unique expression of it, my words are my own, but the stories don't belong to me. They belong to to all of us. And I have to say, I think your book is the only one I have ever read from the perspective of a severed and preserved head <laughs> so it's very unique in that way i've Thank read you. books about severed heads but not from the perspective of one
0: yeah he had a lot of uh, interesting observations to make well there were are so many amazing stories do you want to maybe just chat about a few that kind of stand out toward you i mean we talked about Haydn briefly if you sure. want to talk more about that or or any others
1: yeah i mean i think Haydn is an interesting one to talk about because it kind of it kind of gets at what I think of as one of the main perils that a a corpse, particularly a famous corpse can face. Um, I actually, I gave a talk, um, at, but really over zoom, a library in Australia about a month ago, and it was called the perils of famous corpses. And I talked about Hayden in these terms. Um, and essentially the thing with his story is that it really, it really gets back to phrenology and, Phenology is something I don't think I was really aware of it until I started researching rest in pieces, but it has such a fascinating legacy. And in case your uh, listeners are not familiar, phrenology is, it's basically the science of skull reading. So it's this idea that mental and moral traits cha- change the shape of the brain, which then in turn change the shape of the head. So you can kind of read the bumps on your head, almost the way you might read, you know, the lines on your palm—they'll give you clues to a person's, you know, benevolence, their uh, intelligence, their libido, all of this stuff. I mean, supposedly it's all nonsense. It's it's really nonsense, um, and it also ties into some pretty racist theories of skull shape and skull design, and the idea that you know people of color have inferior skulls. Um, the word Caucasian actually comes from the idea that skulls from the Caucasus are the ideal type. It's very bizarre. Anyway, so Haydn had the um, misfortune of being friends with a man who was obsessed with uh, phrenology, Joseph Carl Rosenbaum, who I think was an accountant, if I'm remembering correctly. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something like that, yeah. Um, and he was, yeah, he it was, it was, it was a numbers guy, basically. So like his twin passions were basically math. Uh, Well, I guess he had three passions, because he was married to a soprano and he loved the opera. He loved opera, he loved math, he loved phonology. Um, And he basically, when the famous composer was sick on his deathbed, he came up with the idea of stealing his friend's skull, um, which has to be one of the sort of weirdest moves in history as as far as I'm concerned. And he ended up asking a friend of his, who was, I think, the director of the local prison, to, like, help. And they bribed um, a local gravedigger to exhume the head. Um, And I think it was also during the Napoleonic Wars. So the gravedigger actually didn't have a ton of say in the matter, or at least like the French soldiers had just stolen all of his possessions. And so he was very sort of willing to be bribed with like some money, maybe some hot food or like some clean socks or something. um, If I'm remembering that correctly. So they get the skull, uh, they send it to a local hospital to get sort of treated so that it can become like a beautiful white skull. And then Rosenbaum builds this, like, glass and wooden case for it and keeps it in his house. And it's sort of like a non-secret secret, kind of an open secret that Rosenbaum and his friend had done this. Um, but no one actually seems very upset about it until I think it's actually several decades later, if I'm remembering correctly, when the Duke of Cambridge is visiting Vienna and he, he's visiting with Prince Esterházy. Uh, the Austrian prince, and they hold a concert of Haydn's music. And Esterhazy is, uh, or sorry, Jacob Cambridge is really just very impressed by this concert. And he 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 says to Prince Esterhazy, "Oh, how wonderful for you! This was one of your citizens, um, and you know he was under your employ, and that you've given him this magnificent burial." Which probably made more sense at the time as a thing to say, but basically, like how wonderful. Are all the ways that you've honored this man. And of course, Esterhazy had not done anything of the kind. He hadn't given Haydn any kind of like magnificent burial, in part because of the Napoleonic Wars at the time. Um, and so Esterhazy is like, damn, I should probably do something about that. <laughs> and that's when he realizes that the skull is not in the grave. And it's a very complicated story, but essentially Rosenbaum is able to hide the skull from him. He ends up giving him, I believe, two different imposter skulls. And in both cases, Esterhazy is like, oh, great, thanks for the skull. (laughs) And Rosenbaum is like, you're welcome. But it's actually like a young female skull. It's definitely not Haydn's skull. And um, yeah, so it takes quite a while. And it's only actually in the 20th century that haydn's real head what we think is the real head is returned to his tomb um and we think there's actually two skulls probably that are in that crypt you it's easy to find pictures of it online it's it's actually a really beautiful sort of i keep using different words but it's not a crypt it's like a sarcophagus it's beautiful sarcophagus with cherubs on it so that's Haydn's story but i i love that one in part because it's uh, it just shows the length to which phrenologists will go and i left out sort of a key part of that there the reason why Rosenbaum wanted the skull I mean it's partly as a memento and like a desk ornament basically but partly because he wanted to see if um, Haydn had the organ of tune on his head which was a particular bump I think it's kind of like near your ears like sort of where your glasses would rest and that the organ of tune was supposed to be um, something you would have if you had a great musical talent so when I was researching the book I couldn't find anyone who said or anyone who was able to figure out you know Did the skull have the prominent organ of tune? We don't really know. But that was part of why he stole the skull. And part of why other phrenologists stole other skulls was because they wanted to examine them to see if they fit, you know, the theories. Um, The Marquis Sad skull was also stolen in this way.
0: And at the time, I mean, the kinds of skulls you would have, I guess, legal access to would be executed criminals. So then it was like, okay, well, we can study the heads of criminals and we know characteristics of the criminals. But what about geniuses right like these other amazing people that yeah. do incredible things with the
1: differences yeah. yeah yeah i mean the supply and this gets into the bentham story but the, the supply of actual the legal supply of actual bodies for any kind of medical study um in much of the western world was was pretty small at this point or at least in at least in england and in america it was hard hard to get your hands on on a good skull <laughs> yeah, for sure
0: well, yeah, let's um, let's talk about Jeremy Bentham. Do you want to describe a little bit about who this character is and uh, what his sure. crazy story is?
1: Yeah, I think Jeremy Bentham, for those people who know him at all, um, Jeremy Bentham, I think he might actually kind of have a bad rap. Because, I mean, I, I learned about him in college as the guy who came up with the panopticon, which is a design for prisons, if I'm remembering correctly, and has since been adapted beyond that. But it's essentially when there's like one sort of large tower, like an all seeing eye, like panopticon that can look over the you know, cells of prisons and whatever. And if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, that was a design that was then adopted to factories and it's pretty bleak. Um, but actually for his time, Bentham was really He was really amazing. He believed in women's rights and rights for animals, and in decriminalization of same-sex relationships, or at least same-sex sex. sex. Um, He was really he was really a reformer, like a legal and social reformer. And a lot of his ideas actually seem pretty modern to us now, or they would seem modern to us now. And one of the things he did not like was the Church of England. He was pro-science, anti-religion, and he especially did not like the Church of England's control over dead bodies, the fact that when you died in England at the time, um, you usually had to pay a burial fee to the church and sort of be buried in a churchyard and all of this. And he was just like, the Church of England is not getting my body, like literally over my dead body. They're not having me. So he did. He's basically the first person to leave their body to science. I've talked to Bentham scholars about this, and I think it's fair to say, as far as I know, as far as we know, like no one else deliberately said, yes, like, I want you to dissect my body after death for the purpose of science. So he asked his best friend, Dr. Southwood Smith, or one of his good friends, anyway, to do this public dissection in London in front of all these prominent medical men and advisors, I want to say prominent medical men and women but probably most of them were men um and there's th- this great account of how there was like a thunderstorm over the body and you know the room flashed white and southwood smith's face is white and the body is white and it's great um but then the reason why this is all kind of survived to, to posterity is that after the dissection, you know, Bentham's will had very specific instructions about how he wanted his body turned into essentially a statue. And it's, it's his bones. He had his bones boiled down. So we don't have his internal organs, but we have his bones, which were then sort of surrounded by straw and hay and like nice smelling herbs and put into his favorite suit. Um, and then he asked for his real head to be, uh, I think the words in his will are like preserved in the style of the New Zealanders, which is really unclear. Like I've talked to scholars about this and I, my thought was, you know, is he referring to, um, the Maori people and, you know, who preserved heads? Um, And the scholars I talked to are like, we don't know. We do not know what he meant. But regardless, the preservation process for his head did not go well. It looks, it looks pretty gnarly. I would say, like, it looks like a bad, like, Halloween mask. Um, (laughs) And Southwood Smith knew that Bentham was like not actually trying to freak anybody out with this, so he hired this, I believe it was like pretty eminent Parisian or French sculptor to sculpt this amazingly lifelike wax head to have on the body instead. And I, I saw it, I, I know you saw it as well, um, when the head and the body together, they're called the auto icon, when they came to New York City, to the Met Museum. Um, and it is such a stunningly lifelike head. Um, and I think it's, it was really a good move that they didn't use the real head. But for many years, um, the body, first it was at Southwood Smith's office, and then it moved to UCL, University College London. It was in their South Cloisters. As far as I can recall, now it's in sort of like a, a sort of a central area, like a welcoming area for the students. But for many years the preserved head was in between Bentham's feet. So you could see his real head with his hat, his walking stick, he's in his favorite suit, he's seated on a chair and then the badly preserved head is like kind of down on the floor in between his feet. But now it's in storage. Which is really for the best. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I want to see it. (laughs)
1: Fortunately, slash unfortunately, I want to see it too. But like, it's better for the head, I think, Uh, because it wasn't it wasn't Bentham's intention to terrify people. You know, I mean, he might have been a little bit kind of classic, or uh, you know, wanting to like poke or prickle people. He wasn't trying to gross everybody out. That wasn't really the deal.
0: I just loved it. I mean, first of all, he he died in 1832, and he's still making the rounds. So, oh, exactly. (laughs) To me, it's like, wow. What a great way to go, you know, like you're dead, but you're still having this amazing afterlife of travel and, and creating conversation and people <laughs> gathering around you and discussing you and we're talking about him right now. I mean, it's, it's a kind of cool yeah, way to gain some immortality beyond like his writing.
1: And he wanted everyone to do this. He didn't just think, oh, I should do this because, like, I'm so cool. He wrote this book, The Auto Icon, Father Uses of the Dead to the Living. And he thought, you know, bodies are kind of being wasted, like, rotting underneath the ground. What we should do is all have ourselves turned into sculptures. And then we can, like, hold debates between notable dead intellectuals and, like, have them in sort of halls of statues and use them as lawn ornaments. Like, he thought we should all have afterlives. I agree. Like that.
0: I, I'm all for it. I think it's fascinating. Yeah.
1: <laughs> i feel like the world would get kind of crowded if every person died
0: it would sort of i mean that's true that's another problem but you know
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean what i like about it is how he was trying to stick it to the church of england i hope that doesn't offend any of your listeners um but it's it's just very clear-sighted to me that he sort of said okay this you know the world of religion has had sort of domain over the dead for like hundreds maybe thousands of years but i I wanna do something completely new and different with my body and take control over it. And I'm, I'm not anti-religion per se, but it's, it's just, it's a very modern individualistic way of, um, of going about things. And I think it has a lot of resonance in terms of how people are trying to sort out their own deaths today, their own afterlives as it were.
0: He was a, an innovator.
1: He was such an innovator. In,
0: in many ways. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about someone who had some pretty incredible adventures uh, with all of her body parts intact while she was still alive. We're talking about Evatima Tardo. I hope I'm saying this correctly. I don't know how we know for sure, though.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows. But that's how I say it, too.
0: Um, so, you just wrote about her for the Welcome Collection, and she was a late 19th century pain proof woman. So, I'm wondering, first of all, how you came across her story, and then what sort of pain are we talking about here?
1: And I love that I'm talking about this with you, Mark, because you have this whole background with the American Sideshow and stuff. So, you can actually sort of put her in context. I mean, even just calling her a pain proof. Woman, well, I think a lot of people have no idea where to put this story, but you might have sort of a sense of some of the history of this. Um, but in terms of how I came across her, um, yeah, she's I sort of love this story. Um, so I used to work for Mental Floss, and we did a video series where we were kind of going into the back rooms and the archives of museums in New York City, museums and libraries in and around New York, and it was. one of the most fun things that I did while I was there. And we did a little video at um, the Conjuring Arts Library, which is in Midtown, Manhattan. I have no idea how I remembered or how I knew of the existence of the Conjuring Arts Library, but that is a fantastic resource for people who are interested in the history of magic. Not as, I don't mean, like, witchcraft and black magic, although there's a little bit of that, too, but, like, stage magic. And the director of it is this great guy named William Kalush, who is a Houdini scholar. He wrote, co-wrote, I think, a biography of Houdini. And while he was there showing us amazing 15th century books about, like, card tricks and stuff there was this cute little white dog at his feet that kept kind of like following us around and he was calling the dog Tima, like Tima, sit down Tima, come here you know and I'm ac- I'm actually not always a huge fan of like small dogs but this one was very cute I think I asked him like or I might have just said something along the lines of oh Tima, that's a pretty name and he just said oh she's named after Tima Tardo a friend of Houdini's Oh, wow. and I think yeah, and I think I I don't remember this that well. I actually do not have the world's best memory, but I don't think he gave me more details about um, her at that moment. I think I might have just gone home and googled Eva Tumitardo. The name stuck. Yeah, the name stuck. It was just kind of a beautiful name. It had a lovely cadence to it, and it didn't sound. Uh, I, I wondered, I think, like where in the world it, it came from, um, like what nationality or what um, what language. So I just looked it up and. I don't remember what I found first, but I just found, I think, some quick like blog posts. I think it might have been um, Chris Woodyard has um, a great blog about sort of dark... Victoriana, which includes some sideshow stuff. I think it's haunted Ohio, but then it's expanded beyond that. Listeners should double check that. I might have some of the names there wrong. But I think Chris had some blog post about Ivatima that, that sort of just told me that she was, as you said, a pain-proof person. She apparently experienced no sense of pain. And I started looking into newspaper articles about her and discovered that not only did she apparently not feel pain But she would have herself bitten by rattlesnakes um, on stage and in front of doctors. And not only did she not sort of – she did not die. She did not suffer any ill effect. She sort of seemed to take the venom as like an intoxicant. like It would sort of act like whiskey or wine, she said. It would just make her feel really good and relaxed. And yeah, I just started doing research on her and discovering more of her story and all of the things that she suffered. And I just thought her body was really fascinating. Her story was really fascinating. And she came to a pretty grisly end that I can talk about in a minute. And I sort of filed the story away. I think I may have pitched it to one or two places. And they were like, eh, this isn't quite right for us. But then I noticed that the Wellcome Museum in London, which is one of my favorite museums in the whole world, um, it's devoted to science and medicine. And it's based on the collection of Henry Wellcome, who, if I'm remembering correctly, founded what later became GlaxoSmithKline and toured around the world collecting artifacts to do with health and and medicine. Um, They were doing, they were commissioning a series of stories around pain or the sense of touch, I think it was. And I thought, oh, this Mm -hmm. might be you know a good fit for you so I reached out to them and I was delighted when they said yes will you write about this for us and they commissioned a series of photos um with this photographer Camilla Greenwell who usually does photos of dancers and so they had a modern dancer um whose name escapes me at the moment but they had her kind of impersonate Eva Tarmo with like a snake and sort of Victorian dress and I just it turned out really well so I was very happy with it so that's kind of how all that came about.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about the photos in the article, and people can look up the Welcome Collection and uh, Eva Tima Tardo or Best Lovejoy, and it'll pop right up. But yeah, the photos are great. I mean, the snakes. Uh, I'm sure she had fun doing this shoot. This this uh, the model.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> brave yeah, model. Yeah,
1: she said I, We were talking on Instagram. I actually did not know that the photos were happening until it came out. But I was talking with the model and the photographer on Instagram after it came out because we're all kind of like tagging each other and they, they are fake snakes, but the people who were walking by the park or forest or something where they were shooting this believed that they were real snakes and were kind of, kind of concerned. But I love how this dancer just kind of has these like large, dark, deep set eyes um, that I don't know if they're exactly like what Iba T. Matardo looked like. There's only a couple of photos of her, but they sort of present, I don't know, some kind of like ennui or, or world weariness that I imagine Eva Tima Tardo to have had.
0: So, was Evatima, was she some kind of genetic freak? Or what kinds of theories did you find where people might suggest, you know, what would protect her from the venom and spikes that went through her right. flesh and all these crazy things that she would do?
1: Yeah. And so, I should say, I think it's important to kind of, well, a couple of things are important. One is, I think it's dangerous to diagnose the past because we don't have her medical records we don't, we can't, we don't have DNA from her. I don't think we even know, or at least I don't know where she's buried. So we can't know for sure. Um, the other thing is she seems to have had a couple different intersecting sets of skills, let's say. So not only could she be, you know, driven through with nails and stuff, and there's other performers, as you know, who can have nails and pins put into them and it's no big deal. Um, but she could, you know, she was bitten by rattlesnakes. She could also, and this I think is the weirdest thing to me, she could stop her own circulation. And so there's numerous reports from doctors who are, who, and I don't know what to make of this, but they report that like, she's, she could have sort of a pin driven through her and she's like, watch, I'm going to make it bleed and some drops of blood would come out. And then she's like, and now I'm going to stop the bleeding and bleeding would stop. And a lot of the time when she was excuse me, run through with pins and things, the wounds, and even when she was crucified, the wounds would be just like white and gelatinous. There's a newspaper account where they talk about them being like a fish. And she could also just dislocate her own neck. So Whoa. <laughs> there's not, so there, <laughs> there are people, as I talk about in this story, and there's actually, there was a great article in Wired, and there was a great article in the New York Times each couple of years back about people who do have uh, genetic conditions that prevent them from feeling pain. This is a real thing. Um, and it's awful it's actually awful to have this. It sounds like it's great, but a lot of people suffer from all kinds of injuries because the thing is pain is information. Like you put your hand on a hot stove, you know, ow, you're burned. You you move your hand off. It gives you, pain It brings knowledge. It's critical information. It's critical information. There's a reason, I mean, it it goes wrong. It very frequently goes wrong, but there's like, it's not always useful, but in the course of evolution, it's been useful for us. So, The thing is, a lot of people who have these genetic abnormalities, I think there's at least three different genes that we now know that are associated with this, congenital insensitivity to pain. And they suffer horrible accidents when they're kids. And it's just, it's really hard for their parents because they have to just always watch them. Because in the New York Times article, there's this, you know, wonderful 12-year-old and it's like, her parents are trying to teach her to be sort of independent and so she gets to make her own food but it's like she's boiling pasta and she just puts her hand into like the pot full of boiling water when she drops the spoon because she doesn't really like she knows intellectually she shouldn't do that but it's just that momentary thing of oh i can you put my hand in a thing of hot water and like you know brunch yourself so the thing to me about eva tima that's interesting is the victorian doctors offer all kinds of like ridiculous Actually, um, I shouldn't say Victorian. I guess it's a little bit after the Victorian era, but they offer all kinds of like ridiculous explanations, and some of the just the medical terminology is like very old-fashioned. Um, I guess some of it is pretty Victorian. It's like gray globules and I don't even remember. It's, the phrases don't really make sense to me. I tried to Google some of them, but it's not terminology that's in use anymore. But there is at least one doctor who sort of talks about her as, he basically says he believes her. He believes he, that she has no sense of pain. But the interesting thing to me is that she's not described as being kind of covered in scars and having the injuries that somebody with a congenital insensitivity to pain usually has. Um, Usually, there's all kinds of horrible stories from a person's early life. It's, it's. I mean, it's possible that people just didn't. That she was lucky. She didn't have those kinds of injuries, or accidents. Um, or she was covered in scars. But people just didn't really like mention it, or they thought it was, you know, a consequence of her shows. And she describes her parents as being pretty um, distracted and busy. And I should say, she was actually born in the West Indies, in Trinidad so the story that she told 19th century newspapers was that she had been bitten by a cobra, um, when she was five and the versions the type of snake that it is sort of differs from account to account but generally it's a cobra and so she was bitten by this snake um, as a child in Trinidad and her family all expected her to die you know little child, big snake, lots of venom um, but she didn't die and instead she just went into this like deep sleep like a coma or something and when she emerged from that it was as good as new if not better and then she was bitten by this other co- cobra's snakes insects, poisonous insects and reptiles um, in Trinidad as a child, and just none of them ever seemed to have an effect on her, the story goes. And then at the age of 10, she, her parents actually decided to have her brought to, I think, to the US and then to Europe, where she could be sort of examined by doctors to figure out what was going on. She says she didn't exhibit herself at museums and stuff but we know that it, we know she, she did at least in the case of the Chicago dam Museum where she performed with Houdini um, but to get back to the theory to, about what was going on with her I think it's so interesting that she was able to withstand not only you know pins and needles but the venom um, I was talking about the story with one friend who said well you know there's ways of getting venom out of snakes uh, you can de venom them defang them and that's true. But part of the exhibitions that she would do involved actually taking venom from the snakes that were about to bite her and injecting the venom into guinea pigs and rabbits and in one case a cat and the animals would all then seize up and die. Um, so unless the doctors doing that, like were doing some stagecraft of their own, switching the venom and that was all part of the act, um, there's a good reason why. That there's good reason to think that that venom was actually poisonous, and the reason why Houdini is so interesting in all of this is is not just that she was friendly with Houdini, but that um, he wrote about her in his book. I think I mentioned in the piece, yep. Miracle Mongers and Their Methods, um, because Houdini, as many of your listeners will know, was really interested in sort of rooting out frauds and fakes in the world in the world of spiritualism and mediums and. Tardo didn't have, she wasn't claiming to have supernatural powers, but he was interested in figuring out what was going on with her because he he was basically trying to figure out how everyone else did their acts. And his conclusion was there's no fakery here. Um, She's doing what she seems to be doing. (laughs) His theory for how she was protected from the venom, at least, was that she would fill her stomach with a large quantity of milk. Beforehand um, and that the milk would keep the ven- the virus from doing anything to her essentially it would neutralize it but I didn't get to go into this in the piece but that's not how venom works <laughs> it does not get neutralized by milk um, so he, Houdini was confused.
0: Sounds so easy. I
1: know, right? If only it was that easy. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's, there are some things that milk can help, but rattlesnake venom is not one of them.
0: By Houdini's theory, he would think like, oh, so she just chose for her act to get bitten by snakes and then she's got the milk and it's, all, it's a great show. Easy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, you know, and I guess he would have thought, oh, the pins and needles, lots of other people can do that. He didn't go into why her wounds didn't bleed and why she could change, you know, stop her circulation and dislocate her neck, but anyway. Uh, so I don't know, but I think... I will say this. 19th-century newspapers are not always the best source. There's numerous hoaxes that we know about that that were perpetuated in 19th-century newspapers. Ivasima's um, story is repeated in enough of them over time and in at least one medical journal, and then we have the account from Houdini and um, his friend... Uh, Joseph Wren, who also did these investigations, that I don't think it's a hoax, but it is possible that, I mean, I don't think it's a hoax at all, but it's possible that some elements were exaggerated in the newspapers. So I think we're, we're probably looking at a case of, I don't know about probably, we're potentially looking at a case of congenital insensitivity to pain. And then she may have been able to inoculate herself against poison over time, which apparently is a thing you can do, you know, start with small amounts of poison, work up your way and get your body we'd be used to it. Um, There are performers I know who do that today. And there was one theory at the time that the bite that she had as a child might've been from a snake that had only a tiny bit of venom left in its body. Um, And so that might've been enough to inoculate her against, against the venom. That doctor also said that the bite paralyzed her, her sensory nerves. I don't know if that's possible. I'm not a doctor, but potentially it is. So I think there might've been more than one thing going on. And then on top of that, it's possible that there was also some fakery or some stagecraft involved to exaggerate what were probably uh, some pretty amazing natural abilities. That's my theory. If you know, if you put a gun to my head and said, "Like, what do you think is going on?" I would say, I think it's a combination of of these things. You know, the genetic stuff, some kind of inoculation against poison, and some kind of I, I perhaps a learned, learned. She might have done transcendental meditation to. Help with the pain. I, I don't know if TM can help you learn how to control your circulation, but perhaps there are some, you know, Eastern schools of meditation that can teach you how to do that. I don't know if that's possible, but I think it was more than one thing.
0: I think that makes some sense. I mean, one thing I love too about the Houdini story and, and he mentions in that book, the Miracle Monger's book, that the attending physicians would prove that, you know, what they were what people were seeing was real by taking some of that venom from the snake and injecting it into a rabbit yeah. and then watching the rabbit die, which, I mean, can you imagine that? Right. <laughs> like, just so you know that what you saw is legit. We're going to kill a rabbit.
1: Uh, right. I mean, I think people back in the day were seeing all kinds of horrific stuff. I mean, don't forget, people used to go to executions for fun. That's true. Right? That
0: was <laughs> entertainment.
1: <laughs> Maybe not in the early 1900s, but I keep forgetting the year that you died, but I, I think it wasn't all that long ago. No about 100 years ago or so
0: the cobras and rattlesnakes couldn't kill her but tell us how Fatima ultimately did meet her fate
1: a man a man killed her and it's just so funny to me i mean i don't get into this in the piece but the um the coverage at the time i forget which newspaper it is i think it might have been one from tennessee um it's so misogynist um and the story itself is just this awful story of violence. Essentially, she, after this period where she's appearing on stage sometimes and giving exhibitions to doctors, according to the newspaper accounts, which again, kind of misogynist and horrible, so we don't really know, she kind of drifts around the country a bit and she isn't really performing anymore. She ended up in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, in a saloon there, where she was living with a proprietor, a guy named um, Hal Williamson. Not, it's not really clear what she was doing there exactly, except that she was involved with Williamson, and she was maybe doing a little embroidery. Um, she wasn't exhibiting herself at all. She had kind of uh, given up that life. But so... According to the newspaper accounts, there was a railroad special agent named Thomas McCall um, who would come and drink at the saloon, and he had grown infatuated with Eva Tima. And um, I guess there were fortune tellers at the saloon who would, you know, read your fortune for a little bit of money, have drinks together. And so that day, um, a fortune teller told Thomas McCall, this is um, one day in, in May 1905, this fortune teller told McCall that another man stood in his way of winning Eva Tima's affections, which is kind of obvious because she was living with this Hal Williamson, you know, essentially his man and wife and his saloon. And um, McCall seems to have been kind of an unstable character was also drunk. So he basically gets a gun and shoots both Williamson And Eva Tima, and he puts a bullet through her heart. And whether or not she felt any pain from that, that was fatal to her. Um, And then he actually, he escapes, and then he comes back to the saloon, argues with his brother out on the street outside of the saloon, and then he kills himself, McCall is. So it's a murder, double murder, suicide. Um, Pretty nasty situation. Yeah,
0: what a horrible, horrible way to end.
1: It's so sad. It's so sad. And it's, it's weird, too, because when you read some of the newspaper accounts from, like, 1898 or so, which was the big year when she was getting a lot of press attention, that one of them actually says, like, if you wanted to kill her, you would put a bullet through her heart. Like, there's essentially no way to kill this person, um, which may or may not be true, but they say there's, like, no way to kill this person. She's not going to experience any problems unless you Put a bullet through her heart. Um, I'd love to know. I mean, she did have a daughter, supposedly in Georgia, that she was sending money to by the end there, but I don't know anything about like her living relatives or where she's buried, if anywhere. Um, and the coverage of, of her death is so misogynist. It basically says that she was like this flirtatious, loose woman, and that like this is what happens to loose women they get killed, and then like their lovers get killed. It's horrible. Like, it blames the whole thing on her, you know, but without any evidence of the, the fact that she, like, wasn't married to the person that she was living with. It's, it's awful. Yeah, uh,
0: it truly is. What a, an incredible show it must have been to see her, and sad way for it to all end. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, like, today, you know, you, you don't have the kind of sideshow entertainment you used to have back then, but you do have the sideshows that still occur, and there's snake charming acts, you know, with various sort of routines with snakes but no biting but then you have like the serpent handling religions where they handle serpents and they they say god's protecting them and then they get bitten and then they die you know but she would have been like a good cross between some sideshow and serpent handling religious stuff that (laughs) would be quite entertaining
1: and she was by all accounts charismatic beautiful witty fluent in multiple languages if she had wanted to start like a cult you know, and say that she had, like, divine gifts from God right. and, like, have her handlers, like, handle snakes and then have her followers handle snakes, too. I don't know, then they would probably die. But she could have loved <laughs> her own cult, like, easily. I could see that. But, you know, I was thinking about it. Like, I would love for someone to adapt the story to the stage or the screen, although I think it could be, at least on the stage, it would be pretty hard to... Um, represent some of the tortures that she went through, although they weren't tortures to her. You know, like, how do you how do you have someone, you know, a live rattlesnake, like, bite someone on stage? How do you do a crucifixion on stage? Um, but, yeah, but maybe a fictional adaptation could take her story in this other direction where she escapes death and instead is a cult leader and, like, earns <laughs> shame and fortune that way. In A benevolent cult leader, I like to imagine. That would be
0: great. I mean, it would be so fascinating to see what else she would have done. You know, where would her career have gone? Would she have evolved it, taken on different kinds of weird... Painproof stunt, or, yeah. or the cult, yeah. the cult leader avenue.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, something must have happened to her because I mean, the, all I can think of is she probably you know didn't have a way of earning a living. Like if she, if it's true, and I'm a little skeptical about this, but if it's true that at the age of ten she was taken to doctors in in Europe, and then she just like you know made money exhibiting herself to doctors and to the general public. I don't know. Maybe she just got tired of that and like didn't have another way to earn money and like didn't sort of have a husband, but she she did seem to have some, you know, she hooked up with this guy at the saloon, and there was maybe some affiliation with, like, the underworld. I don't know. She seems like a, a fascinating character. I don't know that she was really in the mainstream of society, if that makes sense. In terms of her physical experience, she certainly wasn't a part of the mainstream, but um, I don't know. I'm just conjecturing. It seems like she, you know, didn't really want to get married and have kids, and uh, I'm not sure what she wanted, but um, she's, I don't know I suspect she was a bit of like a countercultural figure in her own way
0: yeah yeah it certainly seems that way just a bizarre bizarre talent to have and then yeah where do you go with that so yeah, yeah you kind of wonder like what, what was it like after the show for her I mean she's smiling and everything for the show but I wonder like at night was she like oh god how much more of this could I do <laughs>
1: well you know, she gives these interviews, and again, I will say, nineteenth-century newspapers—grain of salt—but she gives these interviews, multiple interviews, where she seems to say that she's enjoying it. She's enjoying the attention, and she kind of brags about the fact that, like, all these men bring her flowers to her shows, and she, and they bring her like the gifts of like candy and chocolate, and like one time she got this gift that was like really big—I forget what it was. So she's she kind of is like lapping up the attention a bit, but um, she didn't keep. Going going with it and she could have i think so clearly she got depressed or it just lost its luster to her for some reason it's too bad that houdini i don't know that much about houdini it's but it's too bad that he didn't kind of encourage her in some way or take her under his wing but i think he was pretty busy with his own career you know
0: at that point he's another figure who had a just a stupid way of of leaving this earth you know yes getting punched in the stomach like of all the things
1: yeah it yeah, doesn't make any sense and then like probably appendicitis is that what they think or some kind of medical issue like you know before the punch happened and yeah it's after that kind of career a punch in the stomach from like right. a student in montreal i think it was that's what undoes you it just yeah. goes to show that like death does not necessarily follow life in any kind of fitting right like we like to imagine that your death is like you know the final like the climax or the final like fitting in some way to the way that one lived their life, but that's not necessarily the case.
0: Not at all. I mean, you know, it happens when it happens, and then you can just decide to, you know, stuff your bones in a a suit and carry your head around and continue traveling if you want.
1: (laughs) Yes, although I I think honestly, I think at least I would love to see someone try to do that now. I mean, and people are probably thinking, oh, but Body Worlds, and yes, you can donate your body to Grinch von Hoggins and be plasticized or however you say that. But if an individual wanted to just, like, have their friend preserve their body and then put it on display in their house, I can tell you that would be hard. That would be hard to accomplish. (laughs) (laughs) The local authorities would not look kindly on it.
0: They probably wouldn't. And I suppose that some some guests might not, you know, have the same appreciation for it, you know, at dinner parties (laughs) and such, but... When those things can happen again
1: <laughs> yeah yeah oh we look forward to that day although i guess i mean this is gonna be horrible to say but you know social, social distancing would work very well with like a preserved well that's I mean, true you know they're more or less germ-free believe it or not
0: <laughs> yeah and then you don't have to worry about anyone disapproving
1: exactly it is social distancing
0: yeah yeah well this is this has been really great um thanks so much for for sharing evatima's story it really is fascinating and uh, you're always involved in something interesting and, and all these incredible topics. So I look forward to. Oh,
1: thanks Mark. Yeah. I look
0: forward to seeing what comes next for you.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a delight to talk about Eva Tima and I don't think she's very well known. So I, I love that to think that her story is, is getting a little bit more attention now. So thanks so much for having yeah. me on.
0: I, I hope so. I mean, I hadn't heard of her and I'm so glad I, I have now. So yeah. Oh, thank great. you. Well,
1: it's all that little dog. That little dog at the Conjuring Arts Library, I don't know if the dog is still alive. <laughs> That's who we have to thank.
0: Funny how things work out that way, isn't it? Little, little moments like that, and then it leads you on this cool path. And Yeah,
1: years later. Now
0: people know Evatima. She's brought back to life in a certain way, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks again, Bess. I appreciate it. Take care.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, and good luck with all of your adventures.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thank you Best Lovejoy for talking about Traveling Heads and the remarkable Evati Matardo. Visit BestLovejoy.com to check out her book, Rest in Pieces, and her many articles about the odd and unusual. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartzman. This episode features clips from the 1931 film, Sideshow. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland, and this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. For other strange tales, check out my site, WeirdHistorian.com, and follow at WeirdHistorian on Instagram. Lastly, if you like this podcast, tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. Until next time, have a weird day.